You are listening to the Senior Pastor Podcast, where four giants of the Restoration Movement walk us through the issues facing the church today. Your four hosts are Bob Russell, Don Wilson, Ken Eidelman, and Scott Rawlings. Before we begin, a word from our sponsor. With more than 7,000 investors, the Solomon Foundation is committed to helping the local church grow. When you partner with the Solomon Foundation, you get an excellent return while making an eternal impact. Start today at www.thesolomonfoundation.org. One of the problems I had when I worked for ADF for nearly 10 years was convincing a number of churches that things like life and marriage and so forth right. needed to be in a statement of faith and in their bylaws. And so, right. and there was a lot of pushback to that. I said, folks, a federal judge right. is not going to want to hear you go on for 15 minutes about no creed but the Bible, all that kind of stuff. They're going to want to see in print legal documents to say this is what we believe and this is what we right. hold our members to. Yeah, so, uh, and, and you know how closely I work with ADF, mm-hmm. uh, week by week and believe very much in what they're doing. Uh, the way I put it is that uh, there are two ways of having a set. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is just old math. There are bounded sets and centered sets. The restoration movement wanted to be a centered set. Right. And, and so it said, this is what we believe. So you got all the, the, the churches, they gravitate toward that center. And, and, and so we're not giving so much attention to the boundary. Right. Courts only care about boundaries. Correct. So that's the thing. So my argument, and I, it's funny, I realize I wrote this over 30 years ago, is that evangelical Christianity has to be both a centered and a bounded set. I don't want to be only in a bounded set. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be a, a Zoroastrian, you know, the children of light and the children <laughs> right. of darkness right. separated from, right. from doctrine. No, I, we're here because of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There, right. the, 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 that's the center. But it has to be defined by certain things that are not that. Right. And so I'm not going to have a non-Trinitarian in my church. Right. You know, I am. I am not going to have a Roman Catholic. I'll stand with him on uh, in a line at the yep. at the abortion clinic uh, in defense of life. But the, uh, Roman Catholic's not going to be a member of my church. Right. Uh, someone who believes that marriage can be a man and a man and a woman and a woman is not going to be a member of my church. Right. Yeah, and it needs to be. I just I'm I'm telling because we have a lot of people in the restoration movement listening to this. I'm telling you as an attorney, practicing law for twenty odd years. This needs to be in your statement of faith. You need to have a statement of faith, and part of your statement of faith needs to speak on traditional marriage and so forth. And that's, and we've done that at Christ Community Church. It's part of our by- bylaws and so forth. And as a Baptist, I'm just going to t- ask you to take that a little bit further. It's mm-hmm. not enough for your elders merely to adopt that. It has to be a part of the life of the church as owned by the church. Right. We Anybody who wants to use our church building... Mm-hmm has to be a member, and they have to sign off on this is our statement of faith. But that's, we cannot use our building for That's why Heath Lambert asked all his members to sign that. Absolutely. Yeah. What was to make, be very clear that this is not just what Heath believes, this is what the church believes. And you know, Bob, uh, you know uh, Second Baptist Church in Houston. Okay. So, uh, you know, Ed Young's been there for many years. And, you know, mega church, beautiful. Uh, and Ed's a character. I've known him for years. The, the only untrue thing... Ed Young has ever said to me is, this will be a brief phone call. <laughs> but other than that, he, he, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's a man of vision, always has been his entire life. But I teased him one time because I was preaching at First Baptist Jesus, and uh, they gave me a history of the church. 
And that's when I discovered that Second Baptist Houston was born because First Baptist Houston did exactly what First Baptist Jacksonville just did. And they, re, they reset their membership and prohibition they, was required. So they put in absence from alcohol as a principal church membership. That's where Second Baptist came from? They were the people who would not say <laughs> they would sign. <laughs> <laughs> And so the, the dry Baptist stayed at first, and the drinking Baptist <laughs> went to a second Baptist in Houston. <laughs> so this is the same principle, though. You can't have a church that is abstinence if you don't say we're all committed to abstinence. It's not enough that the pastor is committed to it. But did I miss what practically, other than the statement of faith uh-huh. that you've said, what practically can we do to, to periodically yeah. stop that leftward drift? That's always there. Yeah, I think the most important thing is the preaching of the Word of God. Sure. And that means the strategic, faithful preaching of the Word of God. And is so, there a, is there a yeah. necessity for a periodic reevaluation to uh, to see where we're standing to keep that from happening? Well, I I, I think certainly that's the responsibility of the elders of any church. Mm-hmm. But I think you know, frankly, how does anyone know where your church stands on these things? And, and especially, you know, I, I I'm struck by something because I am president of a seminary and a college, and n- nobody on earth makes me happier than my grandkids, but number two would be the kids in the college. Because you got 18 to 20 year olds that love Christ, and they're, they're, they're just wonderful to be around. But you know what? If you preached on something five years ago, they never heard it, not one of them. Mm. Most people get intellectually set uh, in high school. Now, that's not necessarily they stay there, that's why college is so important. But let's just say high school's four years. If you preached on marriage five years ago, None of your high school students have a clue what you said. And it's not that they've forgotten what you said. They have never heard it. And so you have to come back recurringly. Yeah, a lot of our guys think that they have uh, taken a stand on homosexuality because they had a series five years ago on hot button issues and they right. dealt with this issue so that's they don't have to bring it up again but right. i think if you're preaching from the word of that's god right. it ought to be a paragraph periodically that continues right. to reaffirm where we stand that's right and uh, you know i'm absolutely committed to verse by verse exposition amen that's why i do it third avenue in the first hour uh, here here in town that's what i do when i go out into churches about half the time of my life but I believe that at times you have to interrupt things simply to make certain that the people in the room know some basics that you might not get to if you're three years in Leviticus. Actually, Leviticus will get you into a lot of that, but you might not be if you're in three years in the Psalms. So you have to come back and say, okay, what is the gospel? Who is Christ? Uh, what is salvation? What is the family? What is marriage? And you have to do that periodically. I don't want to usurp your leadership here, but let's just really step over the line All right. of controversy. Uh, Herschel York, who is a professor at yeah. your school and good friend, mm-hmm. he said to me one time, the same hermeneutic that you use to justify female preachers is the same hermeneutic that you could use to justify gay marriage. That's the argument I make in the book you referenced, We Cannot Be Silent. Talk about that. Because that's yeah. an issue that is surfacing yeah. Yeah. in right. our church. Right. This gradual move to the left. Yeah. Uh, There is a three-part structure to that argument. Number one, the text doesn't mean what you think it means. Uh, In other words, you can look at texts and they'll say, okay, it really doesn't mean that uh, a woman can't preach in any circumstance or can't bear authority in any circumstance. As a particular circumstance, the church has just misread it for 2,000 years. Second argument is 
that's not really authoritative uh, because that is limited to a first century context, right? It's a specific situation. And, and the third is, uh, you know, we are a church in the 20th century that just doesn't fit the reality that, that we have now. So even if that was God's inerrant infallible word for the first century, we're in the 23rd century. And that was used by the proponents of Women's Word Nation. And so they would look at a text and they would simply say, that text is absolutely God's word. It's inerrant, it's infallible, but it applies only to the church at Ephesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, that it's a special situation. And the second would say, no, it doesn't apply only to Ephesus, but we are in a situation in which we're talking about a, a reality that's more complex than that. And, and so the Apostle Paul is not really speaking to what's going on at my church. Or the third thing is, I'm not even sure Paul wrote it. Uh, it doesn't have binding authority. You mm-hmm. know, we're not even sure Paul wrote Ephesians. This could be, a, a, you know, an, an epistolatory gloss, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the thing is, is that when the pro-gay LGBTQ theorists came along, they used the same three arguments. It, it's exactly the same three arguments. Okay, the Bible really does say what it says. I mean, for instance, the hardest text to get around in all of the Bible on same-sex relationships is Romans 1. And, and so they'll say, well, okay, Paul is writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is inerrant and fallible, but he's not talking about what we talk about now when we talk about homosexuality. He's talking about people who are men actually attracted to women who are having sex with men, and women naturally attracted to men who are having sex with women. That's why it's contrary to nature. But you look at that and you go, no one in 2,000 years would possibly have read it that way. But, you mm-hmm. know, I, I, that's the same argument. It's just basically the same thing. Or, you know, that's just Paul's prejudice. Or uh, that's a situation that might have made sense in that church, say the Corinthian correspondence, might have made sense in that context, but it's not binding on us today. It's the same, the same arguments just come back again and again and again. And, and by the way, you in, in both cases, and you know, this is the first giant controversy I had to face 30 years ago when I was at Southern. It's the first hostile uh, I remember. situation. Very well. <laughs> yeah. And, and I appreciate that you stood with me in that. But in other words, if, if you can make the New Testament say a woman can be a pastor or a preacher, then you can make the New Testament say anything. And guess what? Mm-hmm. Someone is going to come right behind you and do exactly that. Well, it's amazing to me, Dr. Moeller, is that I'm just now old enough. I've turned 51 this year. So I look at the history of uh, academia and, and biblical research, which is kind of my focus for my Ph.D. program. Boswell tried to make that argument in 1979, 1980, and his own student, Richard Hayes, debunked it. Right. Even N.T. Wright, who is not a far-right evangelical. And will not take a out. clear stand on this issue in the Church of England. No, but he but he has said that Boswell was just wrong. Right. I mean, you know, right. and then Matthew Vines just simply repeats what Boswell did, which even moderate scholars said doesn't hold hermeneutical weight. Yeah. And here we go again. Yeah, and you know, the here we go again to me is is just very telling because um, I've been involved in these issues for forty years, my entire adult life. I really don't hear many people in the actual LGBTQ movement. Care one whit what the Bible says, period. Right. We're way past that. Right. I mean, the discussion with Boswell, right. that was like Rosemary Radford Ruther in the right, 70s. Right, you know? In right, other words, yeah. that, back when the denominations on the left and were not declared, now, you know, they're all got the rainbow flags. I just out thought front it was fascinating that yeah. Vines produced that popular book just repeating what no one had accepted. But, in but the first you're place. making the point, which yeah. is they have now directed those arguments at what I would consider to be very weak theology to evangelicals. Yeah. And it, it, it's not like those arguments won, by the way, 
in the liberal churches. No. They no. didn't really win in the liberal churches. Liberal churches were determined to normalize homosexuality <laughs> right, anyway. Right, you know? right. uh, and so, I mean, there, it's not like you go to you know, one of these churches with the pride flag out front, they're inside carrying the Bible and John Boswell. You know, that's just <laughs> right. not, they, they, right. they're just, there's past that. Frankly, they really don't need much Bible. Yeah, 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 they don't. So I'm thinking about the, the pastoral leaders that are listening to this podcast in, in, and, and how they appropriate this to their ministries, mm -hmm. this conversation. In 2007, the Lilly Foundation funded uh, research on the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the... Um, the, the people who are Believe either agnostics, yep. either atheists, agnostics, or apatheists. Mm -hmm. God doesn't exist. We can't know that God exists. We don't care whether he, he exists. Mm -hmm. In uh, the 16 years that have passed since 2007, that number has grown from 15% of the population in the United States to 30% of the population. That is alarming. And, uh, and I am thinking about the pastors that are listening to this podcast, what what are the the call to arms kind of things we can coach them to do to address wokeism, uh, the rise of the nuns in their right. in their communities, in their experience, they're seeing it. Yeah. And we need to wrap up because Dr. Moller's got a heart out, but we need to wrap up here in just a second. But I do want to point out one thing that I see in independent Christian churches that we've talked about before. Uh, to hit on, Bob, what you've been saying, and Dr. Moeller, and, and, and you, Ken, and Dad, one of the things that Don, who couldn't be here today, brought up was the trend to have a separate youth service. He addressed, mm -hmm. he made the point, he said, you were talking about all these young people leaving the church. He said, what church? They haven't known the church. Right. They're back with a youth minister during the preaching of the Word. Right. It is what church have they left? You know, and we've got that problem. Well, one of the things that Dr. Mueller said I'd like to underscore, and I think the, the way to respond is to say, let's get back to just preaching verse by verse through the Bible. And it, an amazing things happen when God's word is, is taught. And I, I, the, the churches that I see that are healthy and really growing even today are those churches where the preacher is just teaching the Bible. And if you're going through Scripture, I think you keep those things in balance and, and you come from a position of authority rather than trying to just do it topically. Well, I woke up one morning. You get that woke? Mm -hmm. I woke up one morning. We saw what you did there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right. And I determined that every time that phrase was used in my presence from now on, I was going to insist on saying, hey, guys, you're just using that to cover up for the fact that this is really Marxism with, uh, that's called woke. Everything, I've read the, 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 the book that was originally written, what, in 2001, on uh, what they're doing in the school system and so on and so forth. And in, at best, it's Marxism light. In reality, it just is, a, a, it is an effort by Marxism to take over the churches, ever, the whole, entire culture. And they're being amazingly successful, and I think we're going to have to grow up and be big boys and take a stand. And I really respect you because of what you have done. And I, I wonder about, as an old man here getting ready to go see the Lord pretty soon, because I'll rat on you birds when I get there, what, what, what I think about is how, I mean, we, have set, we sit here with you, we love you as a brother, admire you as a Christian 
a theologian and, and a preacher. How in the world, with of course the Amer- the the evangelical organization just has been flushed and gone, how we can work together is what's in the back of my mind. We need you, and you need us to support you. You know, I absolutely. Mean, and I think we need some kind of a organism or an organization or something that has these things where we can really put all of our shoulders to the wheel. Yeah, and and speak uh, as as one on the integrity of the Word of God, the evil of Marxism as an outspoken opponent to the Word of God. It right now may be the strongest opponent to the preaching of the gospel we face in our country. Courageous yeah. leadership is the need of the hour, and that's one of the things I appreciated so much um, back at Cincinnati Christian University when you came. Mm-hmm. and kind of walked us through your experience at Southern Seminary. And I appreciated so much the courage that it took. Uh, you, you mentioned that you were with your family at the house when students came in a silent vigil with candles. Right. And your kids were little, and they looked out and said, Oh, look, Dad, they're welcoming us to the yeah. campus. <laughs> yeah. It was actually... Uh, it, it was sweet. They didn't understand. <laughs> but that kind of yeah. courageous leadership is the need of the hour. And, and Bob, you have manifested that through the years, and, and Scott, from the days that yeah. you were a young pastor at uh, Hanging Rock Christian Assembly, and I was a kid. That courageous leadership, I, I, and I tried to model it at the college because Mission Drift is, is uh, in a, at a Bible college, is you've got to be vigilant uh, in the, at the college and the university, the seminary, and... Uh, and the, the great need is conviction, first of all, that, that underpins then a courageous leadership. And that's the well, need. We've got to stay in this fight, right, brothers? Absolutely. I mean, that, that's Amen. the thing. And uh, so I can uh, speak directly of 30 years of experience um, being president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and Boys College in this city. And uh, I've said this publicly before, but I had very, very few friends when I came here and fewer after I've been here a while. <laughs> and Bob Russell was one of them, and I will, I'll be forever grateful to Bob. And I mean, very early on, we ended up being uh, co-accosted uh, in a media context <laughs> in which, you know, everything we're seeing right now was in that room 30 years ago mm-hmm. in terms of some of the questions that were thrown at us and the hostility and all the rest. And so I am just, I'm just very thankful. I, I, I want to say that uh, I think an awful lot of younger pastors think you know, I'm going to do that one day. But if you don't do it now, brother, you're never yeah, going to get boy, to it. Amen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This one of the things that Eric Metaxas talks about in his mm-hmm. book, A Letter to the American Church, that mm-hmm. the, that the mm-hmm. preachers in Germany in the 30s yeah. thought that if they laid low right. and didn't stir up Hitler and didn't get too political, eventually the right would win out. But right. they didn't understand they were living in unique times. Well, and there's also a situation in which I just go back to that 14-year-old. If you don't pour biblical truth into that 14-year-old. The 14-year-old, four years later, is going to be a college freshman, and, and you're not going to be preaching to him. Mm. And, and so the gospel is actually never going to get into that. A part of the whole seeker-sensitive thing was, we'll get to the gospel. Well, 30 years later, when exactly do you get to the gospel? Right. You know, Now you've got 50-year-olds who are secular, the nuns you mentioned. Where, where did nuns come from? They came from churches where they were not confronted with the gospel. They were not confronted with biblical truth. I think we have an awful lot to answer for, but it's also a, a great hope. You know, we're turning out pastors at, of the church that we're part in Louisville. You know, it was down to like 13 members 30 years ago. 
Now it's busting at the seams with young Christians for a two-hour service. And, you, and I mean, just lots of Bible and lots of doctrine. And the other thing is lots of babies. And uh, you know, th- th- those things do go together. Uh, and it's just glorious. You see this, you go, okay, at this point in my life, I know that God's doing something right now, and it might not be something that the world takes notice of yet. But one day they're going to say, ah, who's got all the babies? Oh, it's all those conservative Christians. Yeah. You know, you know who, whose churches are actually filled with actual people who are hearing the preaching of the Word? It's, it's going to be in conservative evangelical churches. So we got to stay at it. The world, the world will look different. And, you know, one of the saddest things that I have to deal with is the recognition that I can't stop the culture going insane. Uh, what if I could? And I'm arrogant enough to think I know how the culture <laughs> should think, and it's not like this. No. But you know what? I can be a father and a husband. I can be a pastor and a seminary president. I can be an agent for helping to encourage things to happen. And when I see them happening in some of these wonderful gospel churches, I go, you know, all right, if I die, at least that's still going on. And I wanted to, I want to wrap this up, um, but I, I, some of the takeaways that I've got from this, and I used to say this at ADF, when people would ask me about the future, I'd say, well, if we can't beat them, outbreed them. Um, that's one. And two, yep. when, when we have those babies, teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's and, what Malcolm Muggeridge said, you know, a generation mm-hmm. ago. Basically, the left's going to die of sterility. Yeah. <laughs> Intellectual sterility I mean, leads to yeah. nursery sterility. Yeah. I want to uh, thank everybody for being here. I thank Dr. Moeller for being our guest. I would encourage everyone listening to this to get every book he has ever written. My favorite is Conviction to Lead. It's, it's an incredible book. But Second edition coming out in August. There you go. Thank you. And so also listen to The Briefing, his podcast, Monday through Friday, every morning, 20, thank 25 you. minutes on uh, looking at issues from a biblical worldview, his YouTube channel. Check it all out. My son's already at Liberty, but if you're looking at sending your kids somewhere, look at Boyce College. So go do that. I want to thank everyone for listening. This has been the Senior Pastor Podcast. And remember, if you want ministry wisdom, go to those who have been there and done that like these gentlemen. Thank you for listening. Till next time. This has been the Senior Pastor Podcast, a production of 1801 Media Incorporated. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode.